everyone, uh, this is Veronica Kelly, Behavioral Health Director, and I'm happy to welcome you to a new episode of Resilient and Real. We are very happy and honored to have Julie Hale with us here this afternoon. Julie, could you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Julie Hale. I'm a Senior Program Manager for 24-Hour and Emergency Services. I've been with DBH a little over seven years, and I've actually done crisis services for the extent of my stay, and I like it very much. Before that, I've done uh, about five years in private practice on the side of my full-time job, and I used to work for uh, a couple different county contracted agencies. So um, I bring some of my county contracted uh, training and culture and philosophy to my work here at DBH. So, Julie, you are a marriage family therapist, and so a lot of people might think that that means that you grew up in a fairy tale, Mm. that everything was rosy throughout your childhood and upbringing, and that you just want to now share that experience with others. So can you share a bit about your family of origin with our audience? Sure, absolutely. I did not grow up in a fairy tale, (laughs) but it actually... um, You know, being an MFT, it probably makes it sound like I know how to talk about everything, uh, about any issue can come up and it's totally comfortable and I can confront it and look at it. But that was not how I was raised. I was raised in a very conservative Christian family. And interestingly enough, I was not raised to know or uh, know how to talk about anything, really. There was... There was nothing negative ever discussed. Well, when until I started getting in trouble, Um, but there was, you know, I didn't see conflict and resolution. I saw silence. There was a lot of silence that I remember in my home. I had to learn how to not be silent. Can you talk more about what that means? Silent about what? If there were challenges, they weren't discussed. I remember seeing. My mom would just cry and I wouldn't know what was going on. I didn't see relationships. I didn't, I don't think my parents knew how to talk to each other or how to have conflict or to show joy or affection. And so it was the absence of information and it left me to make up stories on my own about what I thought was going on. Uh, whether it was their relationship or about money or about parenting. Like I I just, there was just a lot of absence of information and that was really hard. Yeah. I I think important to remember that we learn to adult by watching adults around us. Mm -hmm. And so if the adults around us don't know how to have open communication um, or how to talk about feelings, then that's also what we learn and what we internalize. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. So as a, as a kid, I didn't know how to do that either. And then that really carried into uh, my later adult life and into my relationships in my adult life. So you um, are married or you were married. I was. You've been a step parent. So could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I was married to someone with uh, three boys And I had the privilege of being a step-parent for about 12 years. Uh, They were quite young when I came into his life. And I am very aware of the power of step-parenting and the role that we play. And we can use our influence for good 
and we have the ability also to make everybody's lives around us miserable. Uh, <laughs> that was not the path that I took. I really did my best at being a good parent. I, I would hope that they would that they would say the same. But yes, I had the privilege of being a step parent. So as you um, were going through your adulthood and your entree into being um, in a married relationship where I'm sure communication was possibly an issue and being a a mother to your stepsons. When did mental illness uh, rear its uh, head with you? So the longer that we were married, more and more um, issues, as you would imagine, started to show up. I really didn't know how to communicate about very normal relationship things um, I found that I was, I was secretive about things that I didn't need to be secretive about. I lacked skill in probably really being a good partner. And so the longer that we were together, uh, my stuff obviously really showed up. And then he had some stuff that started to show up as well. And Dr. Kelly, I was actually married to, uh, uh, a marriage and family therapist. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> so it's always kind of um, funny when that comes up that two MFTs couldn't make it work, but it just shows you like we were human beings that couldn't figure it out. Right. And that there, there was a lot, there was a lot going on there that I definitely um, did my best to manage, but uh, with how I was raised with, not talking about anything and not bringing things up and pushing things under the carpet and not having the language um, around uh, difficult topics that when it came up in my relationship and then I started to speak up, that became a problem. So it was during this time, back to your question about when did it raise its ugly head, if you will, I started to notice that when we were having problems and I don't remember if I had left yet at that point. I had a very challenging exit in that I knew I had to, I had to leave in a certain way because I didn't think that he would allow me to leave. Okay. And I started to notice that my my performance at work was starting to be impacted and I I had a couple of coworkers, uh, colleagues actually, that started to point things out to me that I, I wasn't seeing because I was so in I was so in my own world that I, I think I stopped being aware of myself. And I remember sitting at my computer one day and I was having to write an email and I dissolved into tears because I couldn't put the words together. I couldn't put the concept together that I was trying to communicate and all I could do was cry. And I remember being really anxious and I didn't feel like I was performing at the level that I expected myself. And I had somebody say, you might want to consider, you know, it's sad that we have to couch it or, you know, be so careful how we talk to each other. Right. Um, but it was a really good friend of mine who's an LCSW, and she was like, I, I really think you need to see somebody. And I was like, no, not me. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, um, I know that we talk a lot about stigma, but I think that in our field, we are probably some of the most stigmatizing and that it's okay to recommend for everyone else, but to do it for ourselves, to go get therapy. And I really had to look at that. 
And I started, um, I started getting my own therapy and I started getting marital uh, therapy and my relationship did end up ending. It needed to end. And I think that's something that's important to acknowledge too, is there are relationships that need to end. And afterward was really where I was in, I was in a, I was in a bad place and I, I really needed help. And it took me a long time to really wrap my brain around going and seeing a psychiatrist. It, it felt like I was really out of control of my life. And I felt really bad about not being able to manage, but I also wasn't sharing anything with anybody, you know, because of how I was raised and what I learned. I remember when I went, I felt really bad about myself. And after I told the the doctor, he was wonderful. and He made it easy for me to share what I was experiencing and how my depression was impacting my life and how the anxiety was impacting my life. And he said, you know, I'm going to give you a prescription. You don't have to take it. I would recommend that you take it. But my filling this prescription, uh, he still gave me choice, which I appreciated. Mm-hmm. And I, I ended up starting the medication and I was on it for about two years. I think it was life changing. It was what I needed. It helped me be able to focus and it changed my mood. I stopped crying all the time. I wasn't so anxious that it was in my way of making decisions or being in forward motion. I was in um, concurrent therapy uh, as well. And I had regular appointments uh, with my doctor. It really changed things so that I could function. So it is so important what you're talking about because mental illness, like all other illnesses, can absolutely impact all aspects of someone's life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we are so focused in our department on why mental health is so important and that nobody is free from these sorts of trials uh, in their lives. But I do want to bring you back to what you said about the field of behavioral health is probably the most stigmatizing. And we do talk a lot about destigmatizing it, mm-hmm. which I think is important that you are sharing your story. But um, can you talk a little bit more about why do you think it's so stigmatizing for us as behavioral health professionals to acknowledge that we too are human beings <laughs> who have exactly. biochemical things going on in our brain and who are impacted by everyday things? Why do you think it's such an issue for us? For me, I think that there's the expectation internally in our field, as well as externally, that as an MFT, I, quote unquote, should know. I should know how to care for myself. I should know how to communicate my needs. I should know how to talk about shame, fear, loneliness, sadness, whatever it is that's on my mind and do so in such a way that I don't end up, you know, so depressed or anxious that uh, it's in the way of my functioning, that, that we should. And I think the should gets in the way and makes it even harder for us to talk about in that I couldn't. And I needed somebody, it was somebody that was trusted to point something out that I, that I was able to look at myself and know that I, I really needed to go do something about it. Now, I didn't do it right away, 
but I, I, I do think that there is there is something in our culture of behavioral health that, in my opinion, that we should know better or we shouldn't let ourselves get to that place and intervene sooner. I would be very interested that in, in what other people um, have to say about that. But looking back on it, I thought that this shouldn't be happening to me, that I shouldn't have this reaction, that I should be able to handle it. And I'm much more accepting of myself now and my needs and my my feelings. I'm more aware of what goes on for me, but I needed that level of therapy and having medication for that period of time. I did subsequently um, titrate off, but I... As I've been contemplating having this conversation with you, I just realized how important it is, especially for somebody like me who was raised to not say anything about anything, to come out and say that this happened to me. And I'm glad that it did. And to talk a little bit about my journey. Yeah. And we appreciate it so much. Um, you, you said that we often think as behavioral health professionals that we should know. And, and I would say that we do know. We just can't often relate it to ourselves. Yes. Um, Right. As human beings who have brains and hearts. And um, I think we as human beings all have a responsibility to take care of whatever life presents us with. And if we can't do it ourselves, which most of us can't, that's the reason it takes a village that so we can reach out to others. Um, another really important thing, because you're talking so much about self-care, is that self-care sort of implies that you know, it's your issue. You deal with it and everything will be fine. And what, what you just told us is not accurate. It's really about self-compassion, right? Not judging yourself and an understanding that we are all human beings and we all might be in this place at some point. Yes. So I, I am so thankful that you um, were open to sharing your story of resilience and recovery um, and I hope that folks out there who hear this will take some solace in knowing that if they're experiencing anxiety or schizophrenia or bipolar or a relapse or alcoholism, that um, there is a hope. Yes. You're here. Yes. Any last words for our audience, Julie? Yes. I think uh, going along with what you were just speaking about is it's giving ourselves permission to reach out for whatever it is that we need and giving ourselves grace, if you will, uh, whether or not that is a spiritual type of grace, but grace to uh, for, our, for our humanity. And, and being, being a human means that uh, everything is not always uh, rosy and perfect and um, reaching out to others to help us through those times. Right. Very well said. And thank you again so much for uh, sharing a little bit of your soul with us here today. And for everyone else, um, please tune in to all of our episodes of Resilient and Real to hear more about the resilient and real folks that you all work with. Um, and until next time, we will catch you on the well side. Being resilient and real also means practicing self-care whether that means going on a hike, reading a book, or putting down our phones. So each episode will feature a DBH employee and share how they practice self-care in a segment we call Self-Care Corner. 
Hi, I'm Lisanne Gray. I work with Substance Use Disorder and Recovery Services with San Bernardino County Department of Behavioral Health. It's really difficult for us to pour out to others in our families, our friends, and at, at work if we have an empty cup with nothing to pour out. The way that I practice self-care is by at least once a day taking about a 10-minute walk and really just focusing on nature, looking around at the trees, if there's flowers, sometimes I'll walk over and touch them, and just really soaking in the environment outdoors in that time that I'm outside. That's one of the ways. I think that self-care is really important to keep us mentally strong, mentally resilient, and mentally healthy. And I often say to my friends and my coworkers as wellness ambassador, self-care isn't selfish. In the Department of Behavioral Health and all jobs, really, it is important to notice things about yourself when you may need a little bit of self-care. So it's really a place where you need to be intentional about noticing things about yourself. I personally took a self-care oath, so I sort of have held myself to that that oath that I will practice self-care because it is important, but you definitely have to be intentional. Thank you for listening to another episode of Resilient and Real. If you'd like to share your story of resiliency, please send us an email at dbh-publicrelations at dbh.sbcounty.gov. And don't forget to follow us on social media to stay updated on all things DBH. Until next time, live life resilient and real.